0: Alan Watts once said, "The only way to make sense out of change is to plunge into it, move with it, and join the dance." This is Save vs. Rent.
1: Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the everyman gaming podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we are talking about the Pathfinder playtest, Edition Wars.
0: Yes, the second edition of Pathfinder RPG was just released, and you may realize that the first edition was released back in 2008. It's kind of a hard fork from D&D third edition, with fourth edition going one way and Pathfinder kind of trying to stay truer to the third edition feel. This is, of course, the evolution of Pathfinder. Finder into its new second edition. Today, we are going to discuss the differences between the first edition and second edition and our thoughts on those differences.
1: Now, we're just going to be talking about our impression of the rules. We're not going to be talking about gameplay because, well, John and I haven't actually had a chance to play Pathfinder
0: Second Edition yet. I've rolled some dice, I've compared some numbers, I've run a few little combats with myself, but we haven't actually gotten to sit down with our gaming group and run the the game, which is unfortunate, but we'll get around to it. There's a lot of games to play, though. That's just how life seems to work. So we're going to tackle this in the most logical order we can
1: come up with, which is just straight through the book, from front to back. Anything that comes up that is different, that we really feel like we need to talk about, we'll talk about. So the first thing that we
0: should talk about is races. Uh, I think you mean ancestry. They Change the terminology. You see, race is becoming kind of an ugly term because of the euphemistic treadmill. Back when fantasy games were kind of coming out and fantasy novels were becoming a thing in the age of Tolkien and later in the age of Gygax, the concept of calling all of these diverse creatures races gave the notion that they were all part of the free peoples, that these were living creatures that were sapient members of a society and the term race at the time gave kind of that Rainbow World feel. And we don't get that feel from the term race now. Race has become kind of a divisive term that's used by people who are trying to be anti-scientific and insist that there are different structures and scales of humans who are better or worse in empirically measurable ways. And that's ugly. Ancestry removes that sort of character from the terminology. I really like that. I'm going to get off my soapbox now so we can actually discuss the rules, but I felt it was important to mention that this change in terminology is really kind of a forward-thinking thing that does do a lot to kind of remove the stigma associated with that sort of terminology.
1: So, Ancestry. The first thing that I noticed was right there at the very beginning of the entry. Your Ancestry
0: gives you HP. Right, because all of these different ancestries are built differently in physical builds. Some of them are bigger, smaller, stockier, more wayfish like the elves. And as a result, they have different numbers of hit points that they infer to you. So that's a new change because before the only way that your ancestry would have any bearing on your hit points would be as if it modified your constitution increasing or reducing it. Otherwise it didn't matter like what your physical makeup was. That wasn't what determined how tough you were. So this is an interesting change right here. The next change that I noticed was that
1: all of the races are a little bit slower to start off, which it took me a little bit to understand why, but then I realized with the new three-action economy that the races are actually faster and you can just break up your movement a little bit more. We'll get
0: more into the three-action economy later, but it was a little thing to note. Next, we noticed that instead of your ancestry front-loading you with a whole bunch of abilities as in previous editions, you know, if you're an elf, for example, you got this and this and this and this, you got a racial bonus to your perception. You got your vision bonuses. I believe low light vision for elves, right? Yeah. Low light yeah. I, I don't even know why I had to check that. Um, <laughs> and there were all of these other front-loaded abilities that you would get that while they could be relevant all the way up through 20th level, they really gave you the biggest boost at first level. Now, a lot of the ancestries Only give a few very minor things universally. And then beyond that, you have to take Ancestry feats that give you access to the things that are typical of these ancestries. Uh, give, give a few examples, like the dwarven ancestry, for instance.
1: Yes, the dwarven ancestry, there's one of them that gives you a bonus against all spells on your saving throws. Now, this also reduces your resonance, which is another new ability, which we'll talk about in a bit, but not every dwarf gets it. Specifically, that one you have to take at first level, because it's
0: a heritage feat. The heritage feats kind of rub me the wrong way. The way heritage feats work is, at first level, you get an ancestry feat. If you take Take a heritage feat, you can't retrain it, it's part of who you are, and if you don't take a heritage feat, you can't get access to that heritage feat later. There are a lot of the feats, even the first level ones, that you could take later, but if, for instance, you have that dwarven heritage, you can't pick it up later, you can't remove it by any means, and it's just part of who you are. Everything else can be retrained, because retraining is now part of the core rules as a concept, but these heritage feats can't be taken away and can't be changed and let's find another quick example okay like keen eyes for for halflings it gives you a plus two circumstance bonus when using the seek action to sense unseen creatures within 30 feet that's interesting i don't see why that has to be this heritage thing where you either have it or you don't
1: now the ones that actually make the most sense to me are the half elf heritage feat, and the half-orc heritage feat. Half-elf and half-orc are no longer their own separate ancestry in the book. They are now a subset of human, and you take your half-elf ancestry as your first level human feat, and you get minor bonuses and whatnot, and you are now a half-elf. While it is a common trope in fantasy to discover great secrets about your heritage and lineage, oh my goodness, my father's Darth Vader. Very rarely will you just go, Huh. I always wondered
0: why dad was a little bit greener than mom. I I didn't get that, but again, it's actually like learning something hidden about your lineage is a massive trope in fantasy settings. So I don't see why this has to be something that you have to lock in at first level. I guess from a game perspective, I get the idea behind it. And also because it infers to you the orc or elf subtype, which you wouldn't have, but maybe you are just never in touch with that subtype side of you, you know? Maybe it's just not something... And that's why the heritage feats kind of rub me the wrong way. I get the reasoning behind them, but I generally dislike it. Uh, I think next up, we have backgrounds, right?
1: Yes. Backgrounds now replace the traits that you would get in the original Pathfinder.
0: Now, traits weren't actually core. Like, the original core Pathfinder book doesn't have traits. I think they were in the Advanced Player's Guide, right? Yes. And they were... You could take up to two of them, and they had to be in different categories, but they all inferred very small bonuses to you. It generally was agreed that a trait was about as good as half a feat. And a lot of times the traits were built into adventure paths because they were very popular and they gave a way to tie a character to an adventure path. For instance, in Legacy of Fire there was a trait for having been friends with a specific character. And there was a trait in uh, Kingmaker there was a trait for being a noble scion of a specific family. And that sort of thing. Well, all of these these traits uh, have been replaced by these backgrounds, which are now mandatory for one thing. Traits were an optional rule in Pathfinder. Backgrounds are mandatory because they give you one of your most powerful things. That's your stat boost, which we'll talk about how attributes work soon. But just know that that's a pretty important thing. The thing I like about the backgrounds is
1: they give you a skill feat they give you an ability boost, and they tie you into the world. I enjoy characters who have just received their call to adventure and have just set out on their first adventure, but they were people before they were adventurers. And I like knowing what that was, and I like
0: having that inform a bit about your character. Yeah, I mean, nobody was 10 years old and was like, "Ah, I'm just an adventurer now. This is my calling, and I'm never doing anything else. I mean, you had to do something with your life, be it lounging about even. Like, that could be a background. But the point is, there's always something that preceded your call to adventure, and backgrounds are a great way of building on that. And I like the fact that they're kind of a mandatory part. Part of it. One thing is that in Pathfinder first edition, some of the traits were empirically more powerful than others. Like they actually gave you a bonus that was well worth having, and they ended up getting overstacked. Rich Parents. That one is exceptionally powerful because it gave you more money at first level, which is ridiculous, honestly. And I saw it so frequently with players. And on the one hand, like they would all have a story reason why their character had it. But on the other hand, I knew they were just taking it because they wanted extra money so they could finally afford splint mail at first level or whatever. And it was kind of obnoxious. I like the fact that none of these backgrounds, because the backgrounds have a base level of power that is much higher than... it was in first edition you don't have backgrounds that massively stand out as being way more powerful than others
1: the next thing that we talk about are well uh, it says right here free boosts i think that this we're, we're going to talk about the weird way that they're doing point buys now so the old way that they did a point buy system was you were given a number of points to spend on your attributes and buying certain attributes that got you took certain numbers of
0: points, but it was never a one-for-one. Yeah, it it was always a progression where, like, you start at 10, and 11, 12, and 13 cost one point, but then it starts costing two points, and when you buy 18, that's five points by itself, and it just... It's just a really, it's a lot of math, and for some players, it's a little intimidating and annoying, but in the second edition, they did something different with that. Now, all your attributes start at 10, and the choices you make at character build are what determines what those attributes are.
1: Uh, The other thing that I really want to talk about here is how there really isn't a dump stat anymore. Before charisma has always been the dump stat. Everyone has an awful charisma except for the one person in the party who can actually talk. You have three really ugly guys along with the one paladin in the group going, all right, now no one say anything. Let me do the talking.
0: Well, it's like one thing was that third edition changed that by adding the sorcerer and making the bard's abilities based on charisma, which in second edition, they actually kind of weren't. Like you had to have a certain charisma level to be a bard at all. But apart from that, it didn't really matter well now in third edition you had the sorcerer whose spellcasting was based on charisma and the bard whose spellcasting was based on charisma and a few other classes that had charisma based things and then in pathfinder there was even more things where charisma kind of mattered but there was no universal reason to have charisma if you were a fighter and you did not care about being a face in the party there was literally no reason for you to have charisma second edition has changed that
1: Now, there's the ability called Resonance. You have to spend points of resonance to attune to magic items, or to use magic items. And Resonance is based off of your charisma. And I really enjoy that. I I appreciate that they're trying to make all of the stats important.
0: Yeah, every stat is now important for every character in at least one way. Strength, you have to carry things. Dexterity, I mean, you don't want to get hit. Constitution gives you hit points. Intelligence gives you skills. Wisdom gives you perception. And now Charisma gives you resonance. Before, Charisma just... It was how much people liked you. If you were never interacting with NPCs, it didn't matter. But now it's actually fairly important for every character because everybody is eventually going to want to use magic items. So let's get into
1: the meat of character creation. Classes. There are 12 base classes and... All of them have this wonderful little design facelift. Before, when you took a class, you were front-loaded with a bunch of abilities, and then every level you had a choice between two abilities, maybe? Or sometimes you just picked up a feat, which lets you be a better fighter.
0: Or some classes just you locked in whatever you were doing with the class and then got a linear progression. I think the ranger still did that in Pathfinder, right? Where you would pick your fighting style, and then at certain levels you just gained feats that specifically supported that fighting style. Well, now that's been broken up a lot.
1: Every class gets class feats, which I really want to talk about real quick. We've talked about how there are skill feats, how there are ancestry feats, and now there are class feats. Yeah, they really aren't 100% interchangeable, but I like the fact that they're calling them feats. It's a solid chunk of ability.
0: Yeah, we, we have this unit of ability called the feat now, and we recognize what that means in all these different contexts. They're not completely interchangeable. You can use general feats to buy skill feats and whatever, but you can't just use any feat as a class feat or any feat as a general feat. You get the feats you get at the levels you get them at, but it's it's a digestible chunk of information. It's a digestible chunk of power added to your character. And I also like the fact that even though pretty much every class has at least one ability that is, you know, every member of this class has this ability, the abilities now aren't quite as standardized. You can have completely different monks. You can have monks that never dip into the mystical aspects and are just martial artists and you can have ones that are completely attuned to their mystical side and that's their most important trait and you can do all of these different builds around this idea of these feats with only a few abilities really being unique core abilities for that class Much like in first
1: edition of Pathfinder, how they had archetypes that let you build and change and figure out the exact way you want to make your character. Now, every time that you get a class feat, you get to figure out what you want to do. The druid has, what, four, five, six different first level feats that determine what type of druid you're going to be. The paladin, you can go super smashy paladin, or you can go more clerical paladin. The fighter... Well, okay, the way that you play the fighter is what your actual fighting style is. You don't actually change what type of character you are. You aren't going to be going, yes, I'm going to be the face fighter. I'm going to talk to my enemies and make them stand down.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're still a fighter. I mean, that's, that's a given, but the only really unifying ability of the fighter is their ability to do t- attacks of opportunity. That's another interesting thing, is uh, attacks of opportunity are no longer universal to every character. In fact, a lot of those rules that were, you know, these, these corner cases that everyone had access to, but kind of only really applied to certain characters, now they're uh, uniquely fixed to specific character types, and specific feats. After class...
1: We have skills. Now, this is one of the major changes to Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Everything is based off of this proficiency system. There are five levels of proficiency. There is untrained, trained, expert, master, and legendary. And all of them give... Small little bonuses. Untrained, you take a minus two to everything. Trained, you get no bonus. Expert, you get plus one. Master, you get plus two. Legendary, you get a plus three.
0: And you add your level to almost everything now. It's just level is a static bonus. There's no base attack anymore. Just add your level. There's no progression for saves anymore. There's no reflex fortitude. Like, I get a plus two to reflex. I get a zero on fortitude and then half every level. Whatever. Doesn't do that anymore. Now, it's just add your level to it. It and then add any proficiency bonuses uh, so that kind of standardizes things a lot more in fact it's all proficiencies across the board skills use proficiencies Armor uses proficiencies, weapons use proficiencies, spellcasting uses proficiencies. All of
1: these small uh, bonuses really don't add up to much, but unlocking the different levels of proficiency give you more abilities in the skills. Now, as in many games, the skill list in Pathfinder 2nd Edition is a bit pared down from what it was before, but each skill does more. Acrobatics now gives you the ability to tumble. It gives you the ability to balance. If you are a creature that can fly, it lets you regain your ability to fly. lets you brace, uh, brace yourself against the fall. And all of that is just under acrobatics. Athletics now encompasses almost all of the combat maneuvers from... Pathfinder first edition.
0: Here's an interesting thing though is that there also are abilities that you can only do if you're trained. As an example in athletics you can break grapples, break open things, climb grapple, high jump, long jump, shove, swim, or trip if you have an attribute but if you're trained in athletics you also get access to disarm. It's interesting that disarm is the only ability that they've got listed as a trained action for athletics. I'm not sure quite how I feel about that but i think it's pretty cool that the combat maneuvers are more readily available and not as heavily stigmatized as they used to be Uh, honestly in pathfinder first edition nobody was going to be tripping anybody unless they were specifically trained to trip people whereas in this edition it's a lot more viable for characters who didn't like sink a bunch of feats into tripping someone speaking of feats I do want to talk a little bit about skill feats real quick. One of the
1: things that always irked me about Pathfinder First Edition, really all of the 3.x variants, was anytime you took a feat, you took a feat that made you better at whatever your build was. Now... Whenever you get a feat, if it's a skill feat, you aren't doing combat with it. You are expanding what skills you have. You are not just a sword attached to a body. You are a full person who has more to him than just his ability to punch someone in the face.
0: I think a lot of the skill feats are built around the two new modes of play. They've broken down the play modes into encounter mode, which is what most people think of when they think of D&D. You know, you're doing the combat mat sort of encounter. And then there's exploration mode, which is for like if your characters are moving over terrain or exploring a dungeon or something. And then downtime mode. And I think that a lot of the skill feats are more geared toward exploration and downtime mode, which is really interesting interesting i don't feel like exploration mode and downtime mode are quite finished. I know it's still a fairly early draft, you know, this is the beginning of the play test, but I feel like th- those are things they really need to expand on a little more. They're pretty well defined and it's nice to have actual definitions for things we were already doing, but uh, they, they were also pretty well defined in, I want to say, uh, Ultimate Campaign. Yeah, Ultimate Campaign explored a lot of that and expanded on it. There's a lot of that stuff that I feel could have been explored and included even in this fairly early edition. But uh, maybe I'm jumping the gun on that Point being that the skills mostly work in those modes The skill feats oh another thing I wanted to mention about skill feats one thing that really grinds my gears in games is when a new book will come out and will introduce an ability and a feat required to do it that's all fine and dandy except what if that ability in many cases is something that you already feel like you should be able to do with that skill dirty tricks in Pathfinder lets you do stuff like throw sand in people's faces and stuff before that came out I was letting people do that like as a combat maneuver just as kind of an improvised play thing and then it was codified and not only did codifying it make it weaker than how I had been running it which I felt was already fairly subpar like no one was really doing it seriously as an honest combat thing and the new version was even worse than what I was doing but on top of that all of a sudden people who were doing that before couldn't do it anymore because they didn't have the right feet Introducing that feat and giving them the ability to do that through a feat implicitly says anyone without that feat can't do it. And one thing that I've liked about how the playtest is doing it is that it doesn't look like many of the skill feats do that sort of thing. Most of them just say, oh, like Hobnobber, for instance, it says normally you're allowed to do, I want to say, four gather information attempts during a given day of downtime. That increases it to six. That's the only major change, which is cool. It gives you more of something you could already do. It makes you able to do something that everyone has access to better and I really like that over suddenly cornering and cutting off abilities that everyone had access to before the feat was introduced.
1: One of the things I really enjoy is how this playtest is codifying complete ways of playing the game. Let's say I had a character who came from Catapesh or came from Osirian and wielded a scimitar and I want to be a dervish dancer. Well, I would just say I'm Dervish Dancing and possibly take the Dervish Dancer feat, and that's about it. Weapons now have weapon traits that actually make the weapon play to a particular fighting style, and that has me super excited.
0: Now, in first edition, there were, of course, weapon traits, but most of them enhanced something a character was already doing. These ones actually change the way you would play with that weapon in an actual, like, combat grid situation in meaningful ways.
1: The example that I want to use really is the Scimitar. It has two abilities, Forceful and Sweet. One of them gives you extra damage so long as you're attacking someone that you didn't attack already this turn, and the other one gives you a bonus to hit so long as it's not your first attack in the turn. So, you're expected to make multiple attacks against multiple people. You're expected to be spinning around and hitting everyone around you. That, in my mind, is the classic dervish dance fighting style. Whereas, a light pick doesn't do that. A light pick just does a ton of damage on a crit. So you're trying to swing and trying to get these perfect crits to do all of this damage in one big hit.
0: Right, focusing on focused attacks with it versus the scimitar, where you're spinning around, flipping all over the battlefield and trying to hit as many people as you can, which is a really cool visual and a really cool way of playing a character. It changes how you play the character, and that's really what good abilities should do, is make multiple ways of playing the game viable.
1: Alright, so after equipment, we really just kind of go into basic playing of the game. Uh, Let's see, there's spells. I enjoy the fact that spells now take a different number of actions based on what type of actions are required to cast the spell. Verbal, somatic, or material each take an action. So if a spell requires verbal and material components, that takes two actions.
0: Right, one action to actually like make the uh, sounds and utterances necessary to cast the spell, and then one action to actually manipulate the material components of the spell. Same with somatic components. You have to be able to make the somatic gestures that would cause the spell to happen. Some spells even have have abilities where you can add components to them to increase their power or to change how they function. I think that's really cool. They've redivided spells into four categories instead of the two we had before. Used to just be arcane and divine, and now it's arcane divine, primal, and occult. That's a pretty cool uh, change that could open up a lot of possibilities and we might even see more types of spells with uh, additional classes being introduced, things like that. And on top of that, there's now a concept where you can increase the level of spells. Heightening spells now can change their effects in meaningful ways. Oh, and criticals and critical fumbles can happen with everything now. It used to be in the previous edition, you really only had it with weapon-like spells and with attacks. Now everything has critical hits and critical fumbles as long as you're rolling 20s and meeting your number or exceeding your number by 10 or more and vice versa with rolling a 1 or missing the check by 10 or more. Point being that there's kind of more unified systems for how things are done, and I really like that about this edition. I think it's I think it's a really good change.
1: So let's quickly go over a few other little things. Uh, we've mentioned before that every character now has three actions. You can attack, attack, attack if you really want to. You can move, attack, move. You can attack, move, attack. You can cast a spell, move, attack, which is... A lot of cool stuff. Moreover, you can do other things. Like, if you have a shield, you have to raise your shield. Then, if you're hit, you can deflect an amount of damage into your shield. Your shield actually can shield you
0: yeah it still grants you a bonus on armor class just for raising the shield uh oh another thing is armor sometimes affects touch armor class now better armor makes you harder to touch which makes sense i mean yeah i mean we can all accept that padded armor doesn't make you harder to touch that's that's completely fair but if you've got a breastplate you you can't tell me that touching the breastplate is always going to be just as good as touching flesh on flesh right you got to get a firm touch you got to be able to transfer whatever power you're transferring through your touch attack so it does make Makes sense that better armor can deflect this and shields provide that as well now but on top of that like you said shields once raised you can also react by deflecting damage with the shield which can damage the shield and there's a uh, well codified rules for damaging objects now too uh, which existed in the previous edition but didn't come up nearly as often
1: Other things I quite enjoy. Armor class is now broken down into armor class and touch armor class. Flat-footed is just you have a minus two to your armor class. Oh, are you flanking someone? That just makes them flat-footed against you
0: which is great because everybody kind of thought of it that way anyway, even though we all knew in the back of our heads that flat-footed was a completely different thing from being denied your dex bonus and from being flanked. But all of these things just kind of blend together and the terminology got so mixed up. It's great to see it unified into just one mechanic.
1: Another thing I quite enjoy is in combat, there are basic actions and there is a full list of what basic actions you can do and what actions they actually require you to do. Like interacting with an object. John, how many actions does it take to open a door?
0: Well, in first edition, it was, I believe, a move action or a standard action. Eh,
1: Sometimes it was a free action, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, depending. But now it's, it's part of the interact action, which is one action.
1: Readying an action takes two actions. And then as long as someone triggers what you're doing, you get to use that action. Yeah, you're spending two actions to only get one, but if you want to do it outside of your turn, that's a really great thing to do. Taking cover. If you're behind cover, you can press yourself up against the wall to give you an even better bonus to your armor class.
0: Which is great. I mean, that's something that people do in real life. I mean, everybody's pressed up against a tree or something to try to hide themselves or to avoid having a water balloon thrown at them or whatever, you know, things like that. Another thing, it's just a really minor touch, but another thing is there's now in action specifically to point out someone that you perceive to your allies which is great because everybody just kind of free-formed that in 1st edition. Like, if one person in the party spotted a guy, I'd usually be like, ah, yeah, you can point him out to everybody else. But there really wasn't anything in the rules to codify that. Now, there's a specific action that is, point out someone you've spotted to your allies, and they just automatically see them, unless they've got a specific reason they might not.
1: Uh, The last thing I really want to uh, talk about is in the treasure section. Now, John pointed out to me before that the treasure... Treasure seems a little bit sparse. There's no section in there about having gems for money. But frankly, I, th- I think that that's already well known and they're probably going to put that in the full edition.
0: Yeah, well, I imagine they will. The playtest is, uh you're just looking at it, it's about two-thirds the size of the original Pathfinder core rulebook. Uh, those are official numbers from my official mouth. Uh, so, thing is that, obviously, a lot of the description elements and st- stuff like that have been omitted from this and will be included in the final version, I'm sure. And part of that is going to be things like art objects and treasure in the form of gems and jewelry and that sort of thing. Still, you know, it's 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 a pretty conspicuous omission in that sense. But the big thing I want to talk about with treasure are runes
1: magic weapons now have runes inscribed into them, giving them their magic. Now, this is a minor little touch, but I like the idea of, hey, I have a flaming sword, and I want to upgrade, and I want to upgrade it. Well, I'll take the plus one off of this other sword I found and put it onto the flaming sword that I'm already using. That way I can still have my sword, my super powerful, wonderful sword. If eventually it starts capping out in its ability, I can have it smithed and get better. I can still have my named weapon. I can still
0: have Excalibur in my hand and have it be my weapon. Right, they codified rules for actually transferring the power from magic items, which a lot of DMs already did. I know in my campaigns I was already doing that because honestly it's a pain in the butt to do it any other way. And it also makes players less attached to their equipment in a way that to me doesn't stream classic fantasy, which is kind of where my roots lie and kind of the sort of thing that I like to emphasize. So it's a really cool touch. I like it. I also like the fact that some items are only really useful if you're already well-trained. There's items that require you to be an expert before they do anything, which is great because in real life that happens all the time. I mean, you know, you might be able to use a crowbar to pry open a door or something, but you kind of have to know what you're doing to use a set of lockpicks.
1: Alright, and that's basically what's in the core book. Now, once again, John and I haven't played the game yet, but once we get down into the adventure that came with it, Doomsday Dawn, uh, once we play that a little bit, we'll come back to you guys and tell you a little bit more about our thoughts and and ideas. And possibly next year, when Pathfinder 2nd Edition is out of the playtest phase and fully published, we'll tell you what has changed, what got upgraded, and what actually has been Put down onto paper.
0: Right, so that's our look at Pathfinder 2nd edition. What do we have up next? Well, we have a little break in our
1: schedule, and I just got back from Gen Con. I got a lot of really cool board games. I want to look at a few of them that I picked up and just talk about them, give our first impressions of some newer or less visible board games. And tell you about them. Let, let you guys hear about some really awesome games.
0: Yeah, like the other week I, I know we, we played that one Nyctophobia where you had to be blindfolded basically to play the game and you had to play it by sense of touch, which was really interesting. A lot more disorienting than you expect. So I, I know that you got a bunch of games like that and I'm looking forward to playing them. I'm looking forward to having an opportunity to discuss them.
1: All right, so this has been Save vs. Rant. Thank you very much for listening. Strange fascinations fascinate me. Changes are taken, the pace I'm going through. David Bowie Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at saveversusrant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.